You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. When you bring lawsuits and you expose what's going on, it forces change. So we're working hard to get chain pharmacies to change their practices. That moves a little bit more slowly sometimes than the monetary settlements. That was Jane Conroy talking about how she's changing healthcare with her law practice. I'm Teresa Carey. This is our 27th episode. We haven't been doing podnosis very long, but we've come a long way since episode one. And to mark our progress, we've been honored with the Neal Award nomination. Well, more than a nomination, we're a finalist for the category of Best Podcast. A Neal Award is the most prestigious honor for specialized journalism. So keep your fingers crossed for us and keep listening. We're not done yet. We've got a lot more to talk about. In a little bit, we'll talk with one person who is fighting the opioid crisis through the practice of law. But first, let's talk about the importance of nuanced care for neurodivergent adults. 20% of the world's population is neurodivergent. But is the U.S. healthcare system failing them? Medical school students get hardly any required training on neurodivergent conditions like autism, OCD, ADHD, or Tourette's. So how can primary care providers even begin to understand and treat the differing needs of this population and even co-occurring medical conditions? For example, many people with autism also have inflammatory bowel disease but they may not feel comfortable enough to share this with their doctor. Because of this, many neurodivergent adults might go undiagnosed or untreated. Neurodivergent adults are also often excluded from clinical trials. Consider this, 90% of people with Down syndrome will develop Alzheimer's, but for the past 20 years, they haven't been included in clinical trials studying Alzheimer's. Katya Sidal-Kapola, who is autistic, understands firsthand the struggle to find the right medical care. So last year, she started Hopper Health to offer virtual primary care and related services for neurodivergent adults. And recently, it officially opened its doors. She sat down with Anastasia Gledkovskia to talk about the importance of nuanced care for neurodivergent adults. Here they are. Um, hi, Katya. Great to be chatting with you again. Yeah, likewise. So I want to start with you maybe telling me about the moment that you knew you had to start Hopper Health. Like, was there one particular moment that sort of you had this vision, something needs to be done here, I I can do this? Or was it kind of building up over time? I think it was more building over time. I had been spending a lot of time during the pandemic years, um, working on virtual primary care, building member experiences in the payer world. And there was just so much that I, as a neurodivergent person and also someone with chronic illnesses, I have Crohn's disease, um, I felt like I was bumping up against the health system at every turn and yet was also trying to build things that were solving for some of those problems, but it still wasn't quite getting there. So um, when I left payer, I... I think that was the first time I really sat down and thought about what is it that I am uniquely suited to build 
and what is it that systemically people like me most need? And and that's when I landed on primary care. Can you say a bit more about the sorts of things you were bumping into as you were working on the payer side in the healthcare system? Payer is interesting because the individual folks who work in these businesses across the board generally want to have a positive impact. They want to do good work. They want to do things to help people. That's why a lot of them are there. Um, but then you get into these big companies that are very, you know, it's can be like working for the government where it's like, okay, who needs to get this approval and who does mm-hmm. what and what's the next step in the process? Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes it really hard to think about an individual person as a user of a product, especially because payers are so used to thinking of giant pools of people and population risk. So I think there's like some fundamental mismatch between what payers are great at, which is thinking about risk at scale, and what fantastic digital product companies do, which is think about the user down to a very individual granular level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And what do you think, I guess, as a patient, like what is missing from the experience in traditional care when we think about um, healthcare outside of the payer side? So mm. it could be simple things like I, as an autistic and ADHD person, um, I really notice when there is process that feels like red tape and, and that takes my energy to get past that point. So when I go to a traditional doctor's office, I'm asked to fill in the same forms every time I go. And I don't know what happens to that information. The amount of cognitive load that is involved in even making it to an appointment to have a conversation with a provider about solving my problem um, can feel really overwhelming and difficult having to deal with the bureaucracy of healthcare for someone like me is disabling. And can you say a bit more about, say you have a chronic illness and you are a neurodivergent person, how important is it to disclose one or the other or both at the same time to a provider to get the most comprehensive and clinically meaningful care? I think there's there's sort of multiple scenarios. I'll give you the two that I personally have dealt with. So I'm I'm autistic, ADHD, I have Crohn's, I, I have to go and, you know, get this treatment every month where I was going previously. I need to get an IV for this medication. And, you know, been doing this a while. I was a, a medic in the army at the beginning of my career when I was 18 years old. So I I'm familiar with the process and what needs to happen. And I requested that my IV be in my hand in, instead of, you know, inner elbow where most folks would typically put it. And I had to fight with the nurse. Once I said, hey, you know, I, I was an army medic. I'm, I'm very comfortable. People practiced on me. Like, I understand that you want to do what you want to do, but I'm letting you know that this is preferable for me and it works well. At that point, the the nurse was like, oh, well, okay. But I was thinking about like, what, what if I didn't have that experience? What if I didn't have what that nurse saw as the credibility to listen to my simple request about IV placement? It's always shocking to sort of get that pushback when I'm like, but this is a simple request. Could you just say, okay? 
that's the kind of stuff that I think as an autistic person, I get very stressed out about it (laughs) and I can't help it. But I also know being an autistic person that I can't react in a way that's perceived as emotional or overreacting because then I really won't be taken seriously and I lose all opportunity to advocate for myself. On the flip side, so a great scenario would be where I know I'm going to be at that office every single month. I do make sure that they're documenting, hey, this patient is autistic. She needs to come every month and sit here for you know an hour and a half. Let's make sure that we dim the lights. Let's offer her something to drink. Let's put the IV in a spot that she requests versus where we insist. So Mm -hmm. in that scenario, it is absolutely worth it for me to invest the energy and time in making sure that I'm accommodated in the ways that I need. But I've even found it's challenging for my providers to make sure that that happens because oftentimes their EHR isn't set up Hmm. in a way that that information about accommodations can then populate you know, across individuals who might be interacting with me. Mm, yeah. Keeping track of all of those, um, you know, those elements and, and requests. In your experience, how willing are providers to be accommodating and in practice, how successful are they? I think at an individual level, um, I would say globally, very willing to listen, to hear me out, to try to accommodate what I need. But I think it's also more of a passive willingness versus an active interest. They're open to the sales pitch. I'll put it that Mm. way of like, hey, this would really help me. But they also don't always have the ability to independently help me solve for some of those accommodations as well. I don't want to get too in the weeds on this, but can we zoom out a little bit and talk about why providers um, don't necessarily automatically understand or appreciate the needs of uh, neurodivergent people? Yeah, I mean, root cause is is definitely education and just the, the medical education model. There's so many things to cover um, and, and so little time to get through it, even in as many years as, you know, most providers are in school or in training. And so there's there's just a lack of awareness and understanding that kind of starts at that medical school phase. The other thing that's challenging is that there are absolutely neurodivergent providers out there, but because there historically has been so much stigma, there's a lot of things not working in a neurodivergent provider's favor for them to then be able to be an advocate to their peers. Because I think to me, that would be an incredibly effective way to change hearts and minds. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And do you think that as a neurodivergent person, you would have a better experience um, receiving care from a provider that is also neurodivergent, that is not necessarily vocal about that? I mean, have you encountered providers that are neurodivergent and they disclose that and you have a more, um, you know, a better connection with them? Um, Yes, absolutely. So it's funny, I think um, neurodivergent people joke a lot that we develop a radar over time of we can, we know we like people, we're not sure why, then we find out like, oh, you're autistic or ADHD. And we're like, Mm -hmm. okay, that all makes sense. That's why we get along. Um, and I've definitely had that experience with providers. One of the nurses that I absolutely love at my infusion center is ADHD. We talk about accommodations all the time. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the provider that actually 
took me through my autism diagnosis is also autistic. And just the, the empathy and the clear setting of expectations, the way the process was handled felt so collaborative and great. And I had not had that experience with a, a mental health provider before. So it, mm. it makes a huge difference. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, of course, it makes sense that someone um, who shares in your experience, I mean, that's a really powerful way to provide care. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a bit about Hopper and this element of Hopper that is providing your target population or divergent adults social support. I'm wondering if you can talk about the importance of that and and referring people to resources to address certain social determinants. Yeah. So, so part of what we wanted to do was take that advocacy and support component that my husband is providing for me. Many other neurodivergent people have support people, but frankly, many people don't. I was a single parent for 10 years before I met my husband as a neurodivergent adult with a neurodivergent child. And I wouldn't want anyone to have to deal with the healthcare system on their own and go through the things that I did. Um, and so it was very important to me for us to not only have navigation support, because of course there's red tape in healthcare, you know, insurance billings, questions, there's all sorts of things people could use help with from experts, um, but also having those navigators be neurodivergent people themselves there's just a shared level of understanding that's so much easier to get to quickly when it's two neurodivergent people talking to each other and and working to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And so just to be clear, are you looking to bring on people on staff who are also neurodivergent um, so they can share that experience with patients or perhaps it's just someone who is very familiar with treating this patient population? Uh, yes. So the navigators are all themselves neurodivergent. That is mm. a very important part of what we're hiring for and the folks that, that we're seeking to have working with our patients. Um, on the clinical side, as far as the providers themselves, we do have a mix of neurodivergent and not neurodivergent providers. Um, and it's been really interesting. We as neurodivergent people, so myself and the staff that I have so far, we're all neurodivergent. And as we've been interviewing providers, um, the folks who are not neurodivergent that have been really fantastic have a level of curiosity and empathy and really wanting to get to the bottom of problems that is, it feels very unique in my experience with primary care. Mm. Yeah, which is really sad when you think about it. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> it seems like it should be a prerequisite. Most primary care providers are just not set up to be able to be curious doing that sort of like really effective diagnostic interviewing. It, it's They're just not allowed to because of constraints around practice expectations or time or mm-hmm. patient load. Mm-hmm. Initially, Hopper is pursuing a direct-to-consumer model, right? And um, last we spoke, you had explained a bit about why you decided against working with payers um, in a fee-for-service approach. Can you explain that? We wanted to build a model in such a way that we are incentivizing the things that we know are better for people. So we know it's better for people if they're engaging in primary care versus being worried about paying a copay or a deductible for a visit and then holding off and ending up in the ER. Um, We know it's better for people if they are chronically ill to have 
regular conversations with their provider about how things are going and not have to be, again, constrained by cost. So we wanted to align the incentives of getting care from the beginning in the right way where, hey, you pay X per month, you can get everything you need. We're we're not going to limit you. We're not going to say you can only talk to the doctor three times a year. Mm -hmm. What that does is allows us to pivot very quickly to true value-based and outcomes-based contracts with payers because we've designed our model with the right incentives in place on the patient side and the provider side from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And value-based care, you know, that sort of contract would help reimburse for things that um, fee-for-service just doesn't like resource navigation and that sort of thing, right? Which is sort of critical to this population. Absolutely. We want people to use Hopper in the way that they would if everything were covered by their insurance company. That should be the gold standard. Yeah, that's awesome. Last time that we spoke, you said something that kind of stuck with me. It was that, you know, starting this in the middle of a pandemic during a downturn in funding and a slowdown in the economy, it can be a really good time for this type of business. Um, Can you just explain a little bit of that and how you've been thinking about um, growing as a startup in this economy? I actually feel really, really optimistic about digital health startups right now who have the ability to get through it intelligently with minimal funding and be able to come out the other side um, successfully. Because to me, that's sort of aligning with what you want long-term, right? Like if, if you are, if you have millions of dollars up front and maybe you don't even have product market fit yet, mm-hmm. it can really introduce a lot of bad behaviors when it comes to discipline, when it comes to thinking about, you know, profitability or breaking even when it comes mm-hmm. to prioritization. Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting point because I feel like you don't hear that very often, especially in the digital health world. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, we all saw with the rise of direct to consumer, there was an explosion Mm -hmm. in digital advertising. And I think digital health started getting popular right around the time that e-commerce was exploding, that digital advertising was exploding. I think almost everyone had this mentality of you need to invest all of this money in marketing and everything has to be fantastic. The companies who didn't go that route, who built their consumer base and user base through community and through a shared problem, they will sustain because their business model is truly connecting with the populations that they serve. Totally. Yeah. Having a mission that makes sense for your clientele or your customers. That's a really refreshing perspective. What can providers out there that maybe aren't even aware that they are serving neurodivergent individuals, like what can they be doing to help learn about the needs of this population and be more accommodating? Is there anything that they can be doing given the constraints of the system they're working in? The things that benefit neurodivergent people actually benefit everyone. And so Mm. the great thing is providers don't have to do something unique or special in order to help us get better care and be more comfortable. So things providers can do are asking questions on intake about, have you had traumatic medical experiences? How did those impact you? What are some things I could do or not do to help you be more comfortable? 
any healthcare provider should be considerate of those things. Doesn't matter mm-hmm. if it's a neurodivergent person, we're just the canaries in the coal mine that notice mm-hmm. it sooner. But mm-hmm. every patient, I, it does not matter who they are. My husband's not neurodivergent, but if a doctor asked him, what can I do to make you more comfortable? He'd be like, well, gosh, you know, I'd rather sit mm-hmm. on the chair than on this table with the crinkly paper. So <laughs> I think it's it's just a matter of bringing some humanity to parts of the process in healthcare that can feel very cold and very sterile um, and oftentimes are very inefficient. I love that. I love that so much. And I feel like you don't need a lot of time to do that. It's just being considerate, asking one extra question. Um, yep. Even I'm sure in your mannerisms and the way that you present to a patient is, is really important. In starting this company, I knew that I would have to talk about being an autistic person and be able to share, you know, some of my backstory as a neurodivergent person. Um, But I also accepted that that would potentially make me not employable in corporate America ever again, because Mm -hmm. of the realities of, you know, stigma and bias, especially as you get more and more senior in many of these organizations. Mm -hmm. And so the, the reality is, is there are many neurodivergent founders out there. There are many people in healthcare. There are many people in payer that are neurodivergent. Um, and a lot of us are hiding because it's, it's just not safe. People thinking about that psychological safety and what could they do to be more open to the strengths that neurodivergent people bring to the table in the workplace is, is also a really important consideration. Mm. Thank you so much for that. I think it's such an important point. And you have a platform and you're using your voice and others should too. And in return, the industry should be receptive to that and um, make room. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was Katya Sedel Coppola and Anastasia Gledkovskia. Next up, we're going to get to that segment about the opioid crisis and how one lawyer is changing healthcare with their practice But before we do that, we have to talk about March Madness. The month is almost over. Can you believe it? We are pitting healthcare leaders against each other to find out who is the most influential this year. We started with 32, and the polls closed last night for the first round. Now we're down to our sweet 16. Those 16 will be announced today. So go to FierceHealthcare.com to find out who made the cut, and submit your vote for who should be in our Elite Eight. The opioid epidemic is one of the biggest drug crises that the United States has ever had to deal with. And it has gotten worse recently, likely due to the stress caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. In 2020, opioid overdose deaths climbed by 41%, and then another 18% the following year. And now, more than 80,000 people die each year in the U.S. from opioid overdoses. And 3 million more are addicted to an opioid. Chances are, you probably know someone who is impacted by this crisis. One of the biggest issues was the gaps in the system that led to the excessive prescription of legal painkillers. So what about prosecuting those involved in overprescribing the drugs? How does that work? Jane Conroy is a leading plaintiff attorney on the landmark $10 billion agreement to settle opioid cases reached with CVS and Walgreens. 
she's doing what policymakers have struggled to do, bringing justice and working to end an epidemic that has taken the lives of many. We have Jane Conroy on the show to talk with Fierce's Annie Berkey about the case and how cases like this can force change in healthcare. Here they are. Jane, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, as a Fierce Healthcare, really excited to chat. Thank you. I am too. Well, so I think a good place to start is um, your legal strategy. You were directing blame towards chain pharmacies for not providing tools for pharmacists to determine whether a prescription was legitimate. So if we were to zoom in on the opioid epidemic, one of the examples of the tools would be like requiring Walgreens pharmacists to check whether the same patient had recently filled the same prescription at other Walgreens. Why do you think these security checks had not been used by chain pharmacies? Well, mostly, in my opinion, those are business decisions. And it takes time for a pharmacist to not only log into a database and search not only his or her own store for that patient's name or that prescription number or that prescribing physician, but they need to search other stores. And most states have now initiated PDMPs, which are a type of database, a state database you can go into and see in controlled substances what a patient might be receiving from other pharmacies. But all of those steps take time. And it takes even more time for the pharmacist to make inputs into a database about, for example, refusing to fill a prescription or being suspicious about a prescription or about the condition of the patient who's getting the prescription. So from where I stand, those are business decisions. And that's the, and that's the sort of evidence that we have collected with the chain pharmacies, what, you know, why don't they implement certain procedures and what are the roadblocks to those procedures? Yeah, and I think speaking with Reuters, you talked about the magic and wonder of what was revealed in the Ohio case, which are two words that I have not often heard associated with tort law. Um, so I have two questions there, but I'll start with the fun one first. For those of us lay people, um, can you walk us through that magic? Sure. Well, in order to really understand the magic, you need to appreciate how this case even came to be. Many lawyers, myself included, filed lawsuits in several different federal courts around the country representing, and this was a little bit new to us, counties and cities, because it was counties and cities that were experiencing just the, the, the opioid epidemic right at the grassroots level. So we filed in federal court, and then there's a procedure in federal court that one judge among all of the federal judges in all of the 50 states gets appointed to oversee the litigation, even if it's you know a New Hampshire county. It went to Judge Polster in Ohio, and he was what we call the multi-district litigation judge. So that initially became one of the magic things that we suddenly had one place that we could begin to develop the evidence and see what was happening because there's a there's a pattern here among all of the defendants and throughout the throughout the country judge polster had defendants who were manufacturers of opioids distributors of opioids 
and dispensers like the chain pharmacies. So we had a big job. Once you have a court, you can then begin to request information that I just couldn't, I couldn't just ask, you know, Purdue Pharma, hey, can you send me your sales records? Mm -hmm. But once you get a court involved, then you can start to have that back and forth. So that was part of the magic that we experienced, getting it in one place. So we see this this ripple effect um, of starting with manufacturers and distributors, then moving to the pharmacies. Um, where is the ripple effect of that magic and wonder today? I know you're working on a case related to advertisements. Is that the next stage of litigation in the, the opioid epidemic? That maybe that was really started just about the same time. It just has a little bit of a different focus that that involves companies like McKinsey that assist manufacturers, distributors, or uh, dispensers in any kind of healthcare environment on how to promote their products. So that's that's a little bit um, that's related, but I'm not sure I would call that the ripple effect quite so much as I would say that as we developed information about the manufacturers and then about the distributors, and how they did not really conform or follow the Controlled Substances Act, the more information and evidence we collected, the more we began to understand what was happening right at ground zero, which is where the pharmacist was passing the pill bottle to the patient. And we knew this was not a pharmacist problem. That's never the way it, it looks. Mm -hmm. But we did believe that the procedures in place, the protocols in place at these chain pharmacies were not protecting the public. And I think that's where a little bit of the magic or wonder happened and the ripple effect when we began to understand, wow, that's the last line of defense. And it's, it's a sieve. It's mm. completely unprotected. Yeah. And I think that that brings things from this like 10,000 foot legal view down to ground zero, as you're calling it. Um, we have now seen settlements in the billions of dollars. What will those settlements mean for the patients and families who are most affected by the epidemic? Well, what we learned, we do represent municipalities, counties and cities. So what we don't represent are individuals. Those are tragic cases, and it's true that in many instances, they may have a cause of action. But the approach that we took was to represent and look, represent cities and counties and look forward to how to try to control and treat this epidemic. And we believed that if this money that's being, uh, that's we're receiving through the settlements that's going directly to states and counties and cities, and it has significant restrictions on it. It has to be used to, a, the legal term is abate the public nuisance, which mm. is the opioid epidemic. So that money has to be used for rehabilitation, for medical education, for helping with additional Narcan purchases to um, counteract an overdose, to assist in getting more emergency vehicles on the road or more you know, emergency EMTs employed. 
It also will fund more studies about how to deal with addiction and how best to treat addiction. So there's some flexibility with respect to how the money can be used. And there's flexibility across the country about how each entity, each subdivision, each state will focus, where they're going to put their focus, depending on where their problem is. And that's that's very novel and very new as well. Do you think that's a step forward? It certainly is a step forward. And in fact, one of the remarkable things about the settlement in the in the context of a legal um, case, we typically represent a client and we seek justice for that client and we seek some sort of monetary damage for that client. We all recognize the lawyers on the plaintiff side that even if a county didn't sue and was not represented by a lawyer, that county had to be part of the solution of the epidemic. Mm. So when we settled, we made the decision that money would go to a county or a city or a state, whether they sued or not. Because what would not solve this problem is if we had, you know, your own county working crazy hard to deal with the epidemic and the county next door not doing anything at all because they wouldn't have the funds to do mm-hmm. it or wouldn't have the setup to do it. So that was a that was a very novel way for us to approach a settlement to be able to spread it to people who sued as well as people who didn't. I will say this about the epidemic itself. It's nothing that we don't all recognize in our hearts, but this is not a political issue. This is not an economic issue. Everyone has been touched by this epidemic, no matter where they are in their life, regardless of their age, could be a family member, could be themselves. And it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. Race doesn't matter. It is It impacts everyone. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you put um, there are these guardrails, but also within those guardrails, do what you think is best. On the other side is saying like across the board, Walgreens tends as the same policies within different states. So how are those policies going to change? Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, how are their practices changing? I know you mentioned a little bit earlier um, about how systems within their computers are changing. Are there other ways that you found especially notable? That's a big fight. That is something, as a private lawyer, we can recover damages for our clients. But the states, in particular the attorney generals and the courts, can impose injunctive relief on these chain pharmacies and others to change their practices. You know, I don't have the ability to do that, but an attorney general does. And so we have sort of shined a light on the types of procedures that are in place and how they have to change. I believe you're also working on a case alleging that social media platforms encourage addictive behavior in adolescents. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Yeah. And recently the CDC recommended that children not use social media until they are 16 years old. To provide context, I was introduced to social media when I was 12 in 2004. So If these developments speak to the old maxim that technology goes first and the law follows, is technology now going much faster than the law? Yes. And the law will catch up. And that's, you know, typically what we see happen. But 
you know, it's a very interesting thing in particular with social media. What we're focusing on is um, the targeting of individuals who are already identified as being vulnerable to addiction. And the technology is able to do that. I don't think we're going to hold kids back until they're 16 from looking at social media. Mm. I don't think that's going to happen. It's a nice idea, but, you know, seems a little impossible to me. But what I think we can do is shed some light, develop the evidence and show that companies are targeting a vulnerable population that they themselves are identifying for business reasons, because those are the individuals who are going to buy the products or land on a site that entices them to buy a product. And so it never changes. It's profits over safety, no matter what we're talking about. That's what fueled the opioid epidemic. Frankly, that's what's behind the social media case. And from someone in my position, a lawyer, what do we do to unearth that? Look, journalists like yourself, you find, you you push the envelope, you try to find and shed light on these issues and show these issues and make them visible. And then I sort of consider that's passed on to the lawyers to figure out, okay, is there a legal theory that will promote that visibility? How do we seek accountability in the sphere that we work in, which is the legal world? Well, I think that's a wonderful way to end things. Thank you, Jane, so much for taking the time to speak with us. And we hope to hear from you again soon. Sure. I'm always thinking about this stuff. So anytime. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, we're going to hear from Jane Conroy again as she talks about the Ohio train derailment, the health effects from that, and how she is guiding municipalities and individuals as they seek recompense. And we'll hear about how data can help providers identify the best strategies for addressing social determinants of health. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat. Thank you.